Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Outrageous Joy. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. A mime is someone who illustrates a character, mood, or narration using bodily movements instead of words. Mime comes from the Latin and Greek words for imitate and copy. Arguably the most famous mime in recent history is the French actor Marcel Marceau. Born in Strasbourg, France in 1923, Marceau first used his mimicry skills in World War II to smuggle Jewish children out of Nazi-occupied French, or excuse me, France during World War II. When Nazi troops were passing by, he and the children that he was smuggling would hide in the bushes or off in a ditch, and he would use his mimicry skills to have the children be quiet until German troops had passed by. Gradually, his abilities earned him his first big performance in front of 3,000 U.S. troops after the liberation of Paris. And because he spoke English, French, and German very fluently, Marceau eventually became a liaison officer for U.S. General George Patton. Over the next 50-plus years, Marceau would achieve international fame as an actor and a mime. He was once asked in an interview what the difference was between regular acting and pantomiming. His answer was both insightful and interesting. He said, in the case of a bad actor, the words are there even if the actor is no good. But when a mime is no good, there is nothing left. A mime must be very clear and strong. I think Marceau knew a universal truth that we all know as well, and that is there is great power in a great example, in a great copy. And back in the first century, the Apostle Paul knew this as well, which is why he penned the verses that we're going to be looking at today. Would you open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue our series in the book of Philippians called Outrageous Joy. I want to encourage you to take notes using the handout in your worship folder and to follow along with me as we work our way through this passage to unpack some of its truths. You may remember this letter called Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul around 61 to 62 AD while he was under house arrest in Rome for preaching the gospel. According to Acts chapter 16, Paul helped start the church in Philippi about 11 to 12 years earlier on his second missionary journey. The Philippians, excuse me, the letter to the Philippians is a warm thank you letter in general. 
thanking them for financial support that they had sent Paul during his church planting journey. Now, just like every other New Testament church and just like every other letter in the New Testament, there is some dirty laundry aired out here for the Philippians. Paul, as he commonly did, includes some instructions to address issues that they were struggling with, some of which include they lacked joy, they were being invaded by false teachers, which we'll talk about next week, they were prideful, they had unresolved conflict in the church body, and that was causing disunity. Our theme verse for this series is uh, chapter 4, verse 4, which encapsulates what Paul is trying to say to the Philippians. If we were to boil down the message of the book in, into just one verse, you have it there on your handout, and it's on the screen behind me. Let's say it out loud together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Throughout this letter, what Paul is saying implicitly, what he's been telling us, is that having the mind of Christ is the secret to having outrageous joy. Those who have the mind of Christ are able to say what Paul would have said in his day. And that is, I don't care about my personal comfort or what happens to me so long as Jesus is glorified, God's word is proclaimed, and the gospel is spread. That, that, that was Paul's motto, in essence. And he was urging the Philippians to adopt that same mindset. Such an attitude, though, I'm sure you would agree with me, is rare. And it's very rare in churches today. So rare that I would call it outrageous. Thus the title of this series. Something else that's becoming rare in churches is multiple generations working together. And that is our big idea for today. The church thrives when every generation works together. After exhorting the Philippians to strive for better relationships with each other in the first two-thirds of chapter 2, Paul now gives a couple examples to follow as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's as if the Apostle Paul already knows that some of his readers will respond to his calls for self-denial and humility and personal holiness with something like, that's impossible. How can any mere mortal with a sin nature do that? Who, I, that is not the Christian life that I heard about. I don't want to live that kind of Christian life. Nobody told me about that. I can't do it. I'd rather just stay the way I am and enjoy some fire insurance. But Paul's response would be, that's not an option. If you claim to be a Christ follower, you need to change. Enter Timothy and Epaphroditus. The apostle elevates these two men in the passage we're going to look at today 
one younger and one older, as examples of ordinary people who sold out for Jesus, and in return, the Lord used them to play a critical role in Paul's ministry while he was incarcerated. Let's look at the text together, God's word in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Paul, as he's writing under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier in Rome, writing to the Philippians 800 miles away on the eastern side of the Roman Empire, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Here's the first point on your outline that I think Paul wants us to know about intergenerational ministry. And that is that the Lord delights in using younger saints. The Lord delights in using younger saints. He says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord to see you soon. Uh, this is a subtle reminder that even the Apostle Paul, as important as he was to the Lord, as influential as he was, as powerful as he was, as a man who could perform miracles, even Paul had to submit his ministry plans to the Lord's sovereignty, to the Lord's sovereign will. James chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, you might want to jot that down in the margin of your notes so that you can look it up later, but James encouraged this same kind of yieldedness in our planning. When he wrote, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. So who, who is Timothy, though? Who is this guy that Paul's talking about, whom he calls a son? Well, here's a brief background uh, check that I did on him for you, and I'll just show you some bullets here real quick. Uh, first of all, Timothy shows up for the first time in Acts chapter 16. So if you were to go to a search engine like BibleGateway.com or BlitterBible.org, a couple sites that I like to use, and you just punched in Timothy, and they would pull up all the places Timothy shows up in the Bible, the first listing would be Acts chapter 16. He was probably in his late teens or early 20s at the time. His mother was Jewish, and she had become a believer in Jesus Christ. His father was Greek and probably was not saved. So it was a mixed marriage, and he had a father and a mother from two very different backgrounds. His mother and grandmother were solid believers. Paul might have, and there's debate on this amongst commentators, Paul might have led Timothy to faith in Christ 
given the number of times the apostle refers to him as a son in the faith or a, a child in the faith. There are several references in Paul's letters to Timothy. Six of Paul's letters reference him in the salutation. So Timothy is near and dear to Paul's heart and gets mentioned more than just about any other young apostle. He was probably around 30 years old when Philippians was written. Eventually, he became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes him in 1st and 2nd Timothy to give Timothy counsel on how to deal with issues in that church. Timothy struggled with being timid, among other things, and he even had a health issue, just like Paul did, uh, a chronic stomach ailment. Timothy was no superhero Christian. He was just like us. An everyday Joe who had been called into ministry by the Lord, uh, mentored by Paul. He was human. He had strengths and he had weaknesses, just like all of us. But according to Paul, Timothy, and here's letter A on your outline, Timothy genuinely cared for others. That was one outstanding characteristic of his that Paul thought would be helpful in sending him to Philippi. He genuinely cared for others. In verse 20, Paul says, I have no one else like him. Now, there are several people that Paul worked with during his ministry that he references in the New Testament. But Timothy was a cut above everybody else to him. In fact, the apostle uses a fascinating word in verse 20 in the original text that can help us understand what he means in the second half of the verse. It, like him, if you see that in your Bible, I have no one like him. It comes from the Greek adjective, which literally means equal in soul. I have no one else like him, or literally, who is equal in soul. We would say it in our modern vernacular as he's a kindred spirit. He is so like me, or she is so like-minded and similar to me, that we have the same heart or a kindred spirit. And so in other words, what Paul is saying to the Philippians is, even though I can't come to you right now and see you, I'm going to give you the next best thing. I'm going to send my son in the faith. I'm going to send Timothy to you. And I know you'll like him because he genuinely cares for you. And so in verse 20, he continues, uh, he will genuinely be concerned for your welfare or he will care for you. I would render it this way. Uh, he will care for you just like I would, I think is what Paul's saying. The apostle isn't referring to physical health here, however. He's referring to their spiritual health, spiritual care, because that was always more important to Paul than the physical. Where somebody stood in relationship to Jesus Christ was always preeminent to Jesus and the apostles, because it mattered in everything. And so by being concerned, 
Timothy modeled the Christ-like unselfishness that Paul described way back in verses 4 and 5. In verses 4 and 5, if you were here, you might remember, Paul said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what he does here with Timothy and Epaphroditus, I want to make sure you don't miss, is that he rattles off characteristics of them in the passage we're looking at today, and he ties them back, or at least he's implying, these two guys are doing things I talked about in the other column of your Bible in the first part of chapter 2 that Jesus did. They are living out what it means to be Christ-like. And so Timothy, he does it by being unselfish. Next, in verse 21, Paul says, For they all seek their own interest. And when I read this for the first time, I was a little baffled because it seemed out of place, at least in the ESV translation that I'm using. I, I found myself going, who is he talking about? Is he talking about all the other Timothys? Or what, what, what is, who, who are these people? And after doing some digging, uh, this phrase seems to refer back to the other gospel preachers that Paul alluded to in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. You might remember uh, back then he was talking about others that were proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but wanting to inflict him or afflict him, excuse me, while he was in prison. But Paul's conclusion at the end in verse 18 was, hey, I don't care if they're doing it with poor motives. They're still preaching the true gospel, and that's good for me. So Paul seems to be referencing them in chapter 2, verse 21, saying Timothy is not like those other guys. This is difficult for many young believers to look to the interests of others in their eagerness to be respected by the church or to be used by the Lord, they can often overlook the value of just simply caring for other souls and praying for other people that have needs. Not so, though, with Timothy. When he arrived in Philippi, Timothy would do what Paul would have done. He would preach and he would teach. He would counsel. He would pray. He would encourage. He would minister to their souls as someone who was equal in soul. To Paul. Next, he patiently proved himself under authority. Letter B. He patiently proved himself under authority. For you know his proven worth, Paul says. Although he acknowledges this for it's something that his readers already know about, you know he's proven himself. So there's something the Philippians know about Timothy already, and he's reminding them of it. And he feels it's important to do so. Most likely, so the Philippians would give the same respect to his protege as they would have given him. It seems that Paul was maybe paving the way for Timothy, kind of going out ahead of him to get the welcoming party ready and, 
kind of subtly trying to say, treat my son in the faith like you would treat me with respect because he is a spiritual leader. Take good care of him, and I know he'll take good care of you. Now, it doesn't specifically say how Timothy had proven himself, but I think a composite of all the verses that mention him across the New Testament would indicate that Timothy suffered with Paul and submitted to Paul. And he did so throughout his 20s, probably for at least 10 to 12 years. By coming under Paul's authority, Timothy modeled the Christ-like submissiveness that Paul described back in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Once again, tying it back to Jesus as the example, the archetype, and he's saying, Timothy's being like Jesus. Here's a real-life person who has a sin nature, just like all of us, and he's doing what Jesus did. So therefore, if, if you're thinking, well, that's easy for Jesus to do because he's God, and he didn't have an inherited sin nature and all my problems, well, Paul's going, okay, how about Timothy? He's human. He's not a superhero. And he's following Jesus' example. So Timothy modeled the Christ-like submissiveness described in verses 6 through 8. Jesus, it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, this is difficult, again, for those who are young in the faith to to do because they're often eager to lead. They want to have authority, and they want to invest their energy. I know I struggled with this when I was young in the ministry. However, I learned from personal experience and some painfully humbling experiences, I might add, that the Lord will wait to give a young believer authority until they learn how to submit to authority first. And it's so that that believer doesn't abuse authority once they get it. So Timothy patiently proved himself under authority, and that prepared him to lead the church in Ephesus when he was in his 30s. Next, letter C, the third quality that Paul shares that I think all young believers should strive for is that Timothy wisely made the gospel his top priority. The gospel was his top priority. He served with me in the gospel, in verse 22. For Paul, nothing was more important than proclaiming, advancing, Defending and living out the gospel. He bled the gospel. He breathed it. He ate it. It, was, it just consumed him, just as it should us. Timothy, as Paul's son in the face, shared these same passions and priorities as well. His priority wasn't getting what he could from the gospel. No, Timothy instead, like Paul, always considered and asked, what can I do for the sake of the gospel? What can I do to get more people exposed to it? What can I do to help more people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? As opposed to the consumer mindset that so many seem to adopt today in American churches, which is, what have you done for me lately? 
what can the church do for me? What can the gospel do for me? That wasn't Timothy's mindset. He wanted to serve the Lord and do everything he could for the gospel. Because Timothy knew, just as Paul did, that nothing else changes more lives and makes a bigger impact on eternity than helping people receive salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else does even close to what the gospel can do. And so Timothy is not only an example of how to pay your dues by getting experience, but he's also a reminder of how the Lord can use young believers right where they are. Just because you need to pay your dues and gain experience doesn't mean that God's not going to use you when you're young. History is filled with image bearers who have made a mark on the world at a young age. I'm going to rattle off a few here for you. They're not believers, but they are examples of people that God used in his providence to make a mark on the world. They all got their talents from the Lord. For example, American author and statesman Horace Greeley. He was four years old when he won the spelling bee at his school. And then there was Sir Isaac Newton, who formulated the law of gravity at age 24. Or author Charles Dickens, who wrote Oliver Twist, one of his most famous works, when he was 25. Or Ben Franklin, who lived a very full life. He wrote Poor Richard's Almanac when he was 26. And then there's Thomas Jefferson, who helped draft the Declaration of Independence at age 33. So the the Lord delights in using younger saints. And if you are young in age or young in the Lord, or both, I want to encourage you to develop a genuine care for people to learn to serve under authority, and to prioritize the gospel over your own interests. Not only will this earn the respect of your elders, it will also make it easier to work with them. Because the church thrives when every generation works together. Let's look at the text again as I read verses 25 to 30. And Paul tells us about Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Here's number two in your outline. The Lord delights in using older saints as well. And by the way, there's a typo on your sermon note handout. It says, the also delights. Apologize for that. It should say the Lord. So please get him in there as fast as you can. 
I'm sorry about that. I never want to leave the Lord out of any message or outline. I'll fix that on the PDF version that goes up on our website tomorrow. So who is this Epaphrodites? Well, we don't know as much about him as we do Timothy, but we do know a little. First of all, his name comes from the Greek goddess of love, beauty, and procreation, Aphrodite. His name literally means belonging to Aphrodite or lovely, which I feel sorry for the guy. I wonder what it was like going to grade school, you know, knowing how cruel kids can be on the playground. Um, but his name came from a Greek, Greek background, so it's, it's possible that he, he grew up in a Greek family and somehow maybe ended up in, in Rome. But it's also believed by some commentators that he was possibly a Roman soldier who was asked by the emperor to settle in Philippi after his retirement. Now, just a refresher, the city of Philippi came into existence as a Roman colony, I believe it was in the early 40s BC. There was a battle that took place where the Romans conquered that region, and in order to maintain control of the area around Philippi, the emperor at the time asked their soldiers and their families to put down roots there. And then as part of the deal, promised to give them all the privileges that a Roman state and all the privileges that Roman citizens would have. Well, over time, over the next couple decades, there would be more soldiers deployed who would do rotations and would retire there. And so some commentators think that Epaphroditus was possibly one of those soldiers who over the course of time, before Paul got there, settled and raised a family there. It's possible he was around 45 to 50 years old. Of course, that doesn't sound old nowadays, but back then, that was real old, or getting there at least. He only shows up in Philippians, by the way. And as you heard me mention earlier in this series, Epaphroditus was, some think he was a layman in the church in Philippi, I tend to lean more towards him being the pastor in Philippi. And Epaphroditus was dispatched to go to Rome to do a welfare check on Paul because the Philippians had heard he was under house arrest. So that's how Paul and Epaphroditus are connected. So it's during Epaphroditus' visit to Paul in Rome that he becomes ill. And that's what Paul's referring to. So... As a result of that experience, and Paul's going to send Epaphroditus back with this letter, using him as the mailman, Paul says, letter A, he diligently worked for the gospel. He diligently worked for the gospel. He calls Epaphroditus a brother, which not only speaks to their common bond as members of God's family, but also to the relationship they enjoyed. He calls them a fellow worker, which speaks to the labor the two of them did for the Lord and that they, they realized they had a job that needed to be done together. And he calls him a fellow soldier. Again, some commentators think that's a hint at Epaphroditus' military background, if 
if he had one. Others, though, uh, suggest that Paul's just referring to the spiritual battle that they engaged in together, that they were soldiers for the gospel, fighting to spread it there in Rome. Now, Epaphroditus also proves his work ethic for the Lord by how far he was willing to go in order to complete his mission. Notice in verse 26, Paul says, Because you heard he was ill. Now, we don't know the specific illness that Epaphroditus had, but circumstantial evidence allows us to conclude how long he was ill. The city of Philippi, as you heard me mention earlier, was about 800 miles from Rome on the far eastern edge of the Roman Empire, whereas Rome was closer to the western edge. In the first century, it would have taken at least six weeks to make that journey. Since Paul tells us that Epaphroditus was sick long enough for the news to travel back to the Philippian church, we can conclude he was sick for at least three months. Next, in verse 27, Paul said, he gives us a sense of just how serious the sickness was. He was ill, near to death. Uh, The original text uses the adjective of being near to or almost to death. In the modern vernacular, we would say he was at death's doorstep, or he was knocking on the door. Or some others might say he had one foot in the grave. It was that bad. Here's this pastor dispatched by the Philippians to go check up on Paul, and Epaphroditus gets sick and nearly dies next to Paul under house arrest in Rome. And certainly Paul's probably going, this is not how it's supposed to go. This is not the the plan here. I'm the one that's going to go on trial and probably be executed for preaching the gospel. I don't need this guy dying next to me. So it was a tenuous situation. But it reveals something, and this is what Paul's commending. It reveals something about Epaphroditus' character, that he was not going to let illness or even death stop him from completing his mission. Letter B, he sacrificed, excuse me, sacrificially risked his life for the gospel. He sacrificially risked his life for the gospel. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. And in doing so, Paul's tying it all back to the first part of chapter 2. Epaphroditus modeled a Christ-like dedication. Jesus, it says in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, took the form of the servant, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what was he willing to do for the gospel? Epaphroditus was willing to die. Willing to die. What he was willing to do should put into perspective what many 21st century, first world evangelicals consider sacrifice. I think there are things we would call a sacrifice that Epaphroditus would call an inconvenience. 
I don't know about you, but when I read what Epaphroditus did, and I think about some of the things that I have grumbled about, I'm ashamed of myself. How about you? You see, Epaphroditus is not only an example of how to give your life away for the sake of the gospel, but he's also a reminder for older believers to keep serving the Lord until he calls you home. To not stop until you hit the finish line. Because as long as you have breath in your lungs, the Lord is not done with you yet. History is also filled with image bearers who have made their mark on the world in the sunset years of their life. Did you know, for example, that Noah Webster wrote his monumental dictionary at age 70? Or Clara Barton, she founded the American Red Cross at age 59. Or Ben Franklin, there's that guy again. He helped write the U.S. Constitution at age 81. And then there's Thomas Edison, who was still inventing in his lab at age 83. And Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary who pioneered spreading the gospel into China. He was still working in the mission field, opening up new territories in Indochina at age 69. The Lord delights in using older saints, and this means that As I said earlier, if you have breath in your lungs, he's not done with you yet. And there is no such thing as retirement in the Bible. So how do we apply these things? What do we do with uh, these truths that we learned here in this passage? Here's the first application that comes to mind uh, for the older saints in the room. And I would say if you're over 30, you're an older saint, according to... According to the definition in Philippians, okay? Um, older saints relate to and respect the Timothys in your life. Relate to and respect the Timothys in your life. One of the things that I have noticed in my experience in serving in different churches and different places around the country and with all sorts of different demographics, I've served in baby new churches that had a lot of young families, and I've served in an old established church that was uh, 150 years old with a lot of gray hairs and a lot of no hair either, okay? And so uh, one of the things I've noticed, though, is that all generations, whether they are young or old, struggle with pride. The older generations struggle with being proud and looking down upon the younger generations, thinking they're idiots, and the younger generations look up at the older gray hairs and think they're idiots, and they don't know anything either. It's all pride. And so for the older saints, and by the way, number two, I'll talk about the younger ones. The older saints, I want to caution you to avoid doing what your parents and grandparents probably did when you were growing up. And that is, they criticized the world you grew up in. Because it was different than the world they grew up in. Your parents and grandparents made fun of 8-track tapes, Cassette tapes you liked, Walkmans that you had to have, your Atari 2600, 
the color TV you used to have, that you had to have, because they survived on black and white, um, the, the extra phone time you had to have, the phone line you had to have in your room when you were a teenager. Your parents and grandparents mocked all that. The hairstyles, the clothes, and I could go on. But God's word says nothing about the decade that claimed your teenage years as being the standard that all other decades should be compared to. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, Say not, why are the former days better than these? Because it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. So even though your under 30 brothers and sisters in the faith have much to learn, they also have much to offer. They have insights on how to reach up-and-coming generations so the church continues to thrive after you've left this earth. And that's what we want, right? We don't want the church to die when you die. And so the younger generations coming up are very important. And the younger generations can teach the older generations how to use a smartphone, too. <laughs> Seriously, the 19th century playwright Oscar Wilde once said this, you're only young once, but you can be immature indefinitely. So make sure, older saints, that your maturity continues to increase with your age. Next, number two, application two, younger saints. Relate to and respect the Epaphrodites in your life. I hope that's a plural. I'm guessing I could make it plural. I didn't know whether to put the apostrophe there or not. Although it's very difficult to believe, younger saints, we old fogies were once young too. Some of the challenges that we faced when we were growing up were different than yours, and some of them were the same. There are some things that have not changed. We have successes, we have failures, answered prayers, God's stories, experience and wisdom we can share if you're willing to ask and if you're willing to listen. One of the greatest mistakes of my youth, as I look back, was my unwillingness to learn from those who had gone before me. And I regret it, because I thought I knew better than them. I was arrogant. I just was a know-it-all. And then the Lord showed me, I don't know nothing. Or someone once said to me, one of the problems with, with young leaders or young adults is they don't know what they don't know. And that's dangerous. But, younger saints, if you hang around us long enough, we could even teach you how to use a telephone that's connected to a landline. <laughs> Hello? Seriously, Lyman Bryson, who served as professor at Columbia University in the early 20th century, he once said this, the error of youth is to believe intelligence is a substitute for experience. And the error of age 
is to believe that experience is a substitute for intelligence. I think we all have something to learn there. And that was well said by him. Well, let's continue to be a church that learns from each other because we need each other. And as we see here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is the older veteran senior saint. Epaphroditus says the middle-aged guy. And then Timothy as the young guy. Three generations working together doing kingdom work that made an impact. The church thrives when every generation works together. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I just want to, first of all, ask that you would continue to bring younger adults and families, teenagers to our church that love you or need to know you so that we can pass the baton, those of us who are older in the faith, can pass the baton of the gospel on to them. So that Vanguard Bible Church would continue to thrive and grow and reach people after us older folks are gone. We don't want the church to fizzle out when the core of our church dies. We want it to continue. So Lord, please, would you make it possible for our kids and grandkids to worship here at Vanguard. And Lord, would you help us as a church to adapt and adopt to change as culture changes, as worship music changes, as technology changes? Would you help us fuddy-duddies to adapt and flex so that our grandchildren would want to come to church here? instead of looking at Vanguard as outdated. And Lord, please, would you humble also us older saints? Would you remind us that we're not done growing yet? We still have a lot to learn as well. And Lord, would you help us to be willing to learn from younger believers? about music and culture and entertainment and language? Would you help us to adapt so that, as Paul talked about when he wrote the Corinthians, we can do everything necessary to reach more with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Father, I thank you so much that Uh, There has not been, at least to my knowledge, um, any intergenerational rivalry in this church. I thank you how uh, adults and teenagers across generations have been able to serve together. It's beautiful to see. Lord, help us to get even better at it. We just ask that you would continue to add to our numbers and help us to be a church that exists for all generations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.